Welcome to another episode of Be The Way Forward. I'm your host, Brenda Darden Wilkerson, and on today's episode, I'm so excited to share my conversation with video game designer and developer, Kelly Santiago. When I started there, like I had men straight up to my face tell me that I was not as smart as them because I was a woman. That I was incapable of making great games because I exhibited feminine qualities. Kelly is a game design innovator and is determined to change the way we all view games. She has worked through every step of game development for companies like Google and Niantic. Kelly insists that games are much more than simply entertainment. Here's our conversation. So I'm here today with Kelly Santiago, game designer extraordinaire, and I'm so excited to get to speak with uh, Kelly about this really important area of tech that there aren't a lot of us. So welcome, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you so much. Can you just start out by talking about your journey to becoming a game designer and and eventually an executive? I mean, how did you end up here? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a twisting, winding road, as I think many people of sort of my generation and older in the industry, because now there are a lot of video game design, engineering development um, programs available. Um, but when I was getting started, it was not something you studied. It was something pretty much anyone just kind of fell into. Um, so my background was um, more in other forms of entertainment, um, a lot in live performance and theater. And I went to NYU for theater and I was working in New York for a couple years and I had grown up with video games um, and with a computer in my house. Um, I was very comfortable with tech. I feel like it's important to note that this was also a time before STEAM, you know, as a discipline sort of existed. And it was very much like arts over here, math and science over there. And so when I was working in New York, um, I really gravitated towards experimental theater and new works. And more of those were starting to incorporate digital and interactive media elements. And I became the de facto person kind of in charge of that stuff because I was comfortable and really enjoyed playing in that space. And I thought, well, maybe this is something I can go kind of specialize in and build a career out of that. And that's what led me to discover this relatively new, um, I was the second incoming class, interactive media program, uh, MFA program at USC in the School of Cinematic Arts. Um, so really rooted around um, interactive media and storytelling, um, which I think is important to note as my, part of my origin story here. And that's where my first year, I say it was like a one-two punch in video games, where I first took this course taught by Tracy Fullerton on the history of game design, and it went throughout human history and, and culture, how play is a cornerstone of culture, um, taking that through sports, board games, and into video games, um, which, again, I had played video games, but never thought about them as a creative outlet for myself. And that really opened up my perceptions. 
and also just seeing, wow, video games really haven't, have barely scratched the surface of even what's been explored in terms of game design as a whole. And then the program sent us to the game developers conference that year. And I just felt like at that moment I had found my tribe where it was just all of these people who a love video games, which were still kind of a niche, uh, th- a niche entertainment product at the time. And also, um, we're passionate about so many different areas that we're, we're passionate about arts, about storytelling, as well as human psychology and engineering um, and all of these different disciplines that have to come together to make a video game. And it just sort of felt like, oh, this is kind of what I've been looking for this whole time. And so I started throwing myself into as many game projects as possible and doing internships. And that led me to partnering with another student in the program, Genova Chin, um, to work on a student project called Cloud. And Cloud was this project where we wanted to take the things that we had been learning in the program um, in terms of approaching video games as a communicative medium, seeing it as being capable of communicating more than what people thought of at the time. I believe this was right around one of the Grand Theft Autos had been released, which always led to the spike in sort of conversations around our video games too violent and what do they mean? And it was sort of saying, why don't we try and make a game that isn't any of those things, um, but is uh, potentially commercially successful. And so Cloud was a game where we wanted to capture the feeling of being a kid daydreaming and looking at the clouds. And in the game, you play as this kid um, flying through the clouds, essentially, um, and accomplishing different puzzles. I mean, it was student project. It's not trying to say it's the best game ever made. Um, but it ended up really resonating for a lot of people. And so there were more people funding projects, looking to fund projects for these new channels um, to fill them up with content. This was really the birth of independent game development as we know it today. Kelly, why do you love making games? I love the process of navigating this like space in which you don't know what the output is going to be, but I know the process is going to get me there. It's sort of like going on a a backpacking trip with a bunch of your friends um, and you don't quite know the path you're going to take but you know this crew is great and you're going to have, you're going to learn a lot along the way. Um, I think that process is really, it's so, it can be so stressful, but also just so rewarding. Um, And then just the end part of having players then play and experience that. I think games are, whereas linear media, books, media, television, books, movies, and television are more like great places to make a statement I think games are really great at having a conversation and I became really involved in a lot of the ground floor of a lot of forums for developers to connect with each other, learn from each other. One of the challenges was that the funding opportunities, especially at that time, were the contract points were really based around the idea that you needed millions of dollars. And so the people giving that money 
wanted a lot in return. Um, even with our deal with PlayStation Network, you know, they own all the IP for those projects, for instance. But for many independent developers, they just needed small, like tens of thousands of dollars at the time to really have provide like finishing funds to get that extra polish or help partner with a PR agency um, to launch their game. Um, and so we set out transparent terms that were much more advantageous to the developers. The idea being to help, you know, yes, like everybody makes a little bit of money, but primarily the developer gets to establish themselves in order to hopefully continue to self-fund future endeavors. Mm -hmm. So I add that because that was sort of my, my attraction to moving more into the publishing um, BD side of the industry and seeing, okay, like, it's really interesting, like how something um, so functional as like the shift to digital distribution changed a lot about who gets to make a game and what a game is and and what we expect out of games, um, you know, what are the other lever levers we could potentially pull here? And I also learned in that time that it was really games that got me out of bed, that like at the core of it with all the drama that I'm sure we'll talk about aside, there's this, uh, just the element of making games and, and providing spaces for people to play in um, is still an area that excites me. Wow, that is an amazing, <laughs> an amazing trip through um, yeah. a space that has changed a lot over time. You know, you just said providing spaces for people to make games because in a lot of those changes, you said that, you know, it, it would have controlled who got to, who didn't, and I'm say conversely, who didn't get to create mm -hmm. games. And mm -hmm. um, also that includes who they were creating games for in terms of today, after all of those learnings, do you think are the key elements for providing a, a space for people who want to create games like yourself? Mm -hmm. like, you're like, this is what I, I want to do. This is what I know how to do. What does the industry need to do to provide space for whoever wants to make games to make games? Yeah, I mean, I th I think something that's still great about the game industry it was true when I started, and I had not experienced this in any other medium I had played in, was an element of really just open support of people interested in making games. I think it's amazingly easy to reach out to industry professionals and ask them for their advice, mentorship, help. Now you have to get over the point of um, the, you know, the, the barriers that can be in place that prevent us from reaching out and asking for help. Um, so I think we're always as an industry looking at how to bridge those gaps more, how to reach people that are interested, but think that it's not for them. Um, and there's been amazing work in that. There's still the um, IGDA, which is the International Game Developers Association, and they maintain chapters all over the world. Um, and there's usually anywhere you live, a community of people interested in making games 
um, that come together around that, that come to do game jams together. They're a great outlet to like find other people to work with and make games with. The tools to make games have become extremely accessible. Um, so that's been amazing. Um, I think one of the gaps is the other, the other pieces of how to make a game, right? Which are like, um, I always think of it as like the non-sexy uh, GDC talk, which is like the brass tacks of how do you um, uh, coordinate, you know, how the production aspects, like how do you manage schedules? How do you communicate? It is a really interdisciplinary um, endeavor. And so it requires, um, I think, a higher level than most of, of collaboration skills, um, and then also the knowledge around what makes a great game and how do you take your idea um, from bad to great or from good to great is still a softer subject. And then like many areas, the initial startup funds for it is a huge, huge barrier. So um, most... I mean, by and large, I think more so than most other industries I see, games, game funds available are based on funding your project at the point at which you already have a pretty polished, playable experience. Um, again, which I understand being on the other side of the table because you're, you want to see that the team has demonstrated all of those skills I just talked about. Um, but of course... That means whoever's getting to that place has been able to finance the project on their own through some means that are definitely not accessible to most people. Yeah, um, and, yeah that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that, and we see funding is in tech, uh, especially for women founders, is always a challenge. Um, and it's not necessarily that the ideas aren't good, but the funding is, is a challenge. So it makes sense that it would be a challenge here. So I'm always going to, you know, I always ask in all of my interviews, when I talk to people, I, I come at this as though it's a foregone conclusion that we should have diversity at the table, that the representation of the world should be sitting at the table where tech is created. And I, I personally feel the same way about games, but Kelly, can you tell us why is that important? You know, why, why do we need that? And, and, you know, first of all, do you, do you agree with me? And, and if, if so, why? Yeah, yes, I definitely agree with you. I think um, games are such an important uh, and ever growing part of our culture. It's part of our global conversation and the communities that are growing within them and an important um, way to learn and, and develop critical skills. And so if we're only making that, you know, for a certain audience, then we're really seeding the ground completely in this space, which I just find so unaccept unacceptable. Um, I think there's just so many stories and perspectives that are missing in games today that I know I want to experience, like experiencing a story from someone else's perspective through a game is a really powerful tool because they can be such engines for empathy. 
Yeah, I think the the part about empathy cannot be overstated. Um, we need every opportunity, I believe, in 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 interactive society uh, to be able to gain empathy, especially around people that you know we don't see every day or are not in our everyday life. So I really like uh, what you said about uh, having the games be part of that development of empathy. I have another example there, actually, I was thinking of, I think it's so exciting right now, the, the investment that's happening in women's soccer and developing new teams in America. Um, as an example of this, where the industry, and this was on the, the press release, we just had one in, uh, we have a new one in the Bay Area that's been funded. Um, and in the announcement, the investors were talking about how, you know, it's been, uh, as long as I can remember, um, professional sports has been looking to expand into women audiences and finding, like, figuring out how, how can they appeal to women? And like, guess what? It turns out women really like watching other women play. <laughs> Whoa. How do you expect us? <laughs> yeah, more women players and more women run clubs. Wow. So it's just like, a, yeah, I think it's such a, a, a hard example of like why it's important and the impact it can have. I love that. That is so true. That is so true. And, and it, that it's taken us that long to figure it out. <laughs> They were like, this is a classic example of like a, a great investment space where it's like totally undervalued for no reason right now, other than bias piece. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go deeper here and let's take it back to the history of play class that was so formative for you. Mm -hmm. Why why are games important? You know, I I think sometimes people can cast them as kind of frivolous, right? Or, yeah. or silly, or, or even like you mentioned earlier, destructive. But, but that is not really hitting at the real impact and the vital role that games play in our lives. So can you talk a little more about it at, at their best? What can, what can games bring to us? Yeah, so part of that, there's a, um... Uh, an author, John Huizinga, who writes about the, the culture of play and how it play is a cornerstone of any civilization's culture. Um, and an example he provides is how, um, and this is actually not, a, not civilization related, but in animals, you can see um, puppies are play fighting with each other and they do that to prepare themselves to be grown-up dogs um, and to develop those skills that they're going to need for survival. Um, and similarly, the way we play provides opportunities for us to learn about problem-solving, about resiliency in, in um, to failure, um, about imagining different ways of relating to the world and relating to each other. There's a special place within a game that's, um, to, to borrow a witchy term, which is the, it's a magic circle. And so within that magic circle, when you and I are playing Risk, for instance, I'm going to relate to you differently than I am 
in our normal lives, right? I'm like, I may be, I may do things that are perceived as like mean um, in order to win the game that I wouldn't normally do <laughs> in my life. And that's the magic circle of it though, is that we enter into it in an agreement that we're going to try out being with each other in a slightly different way and see how that is. And then we can think about it um, and, you know, evaluate it and also create a special place for that. So maybe that it's not an outlet, like we have an outlet for the, those dynamics that we don't need to have in the, in our day-to-day real world existence. I think um, games also another way of thinking of a game designer is a systems thinker and so one thing I love about games and game learning about game design is the awareness that you get of all the systems that we participate in every day consciously or unconsciously and how all these systems interact with each other and the complicated matrix of them gives us more potentially more capability to a see that they are all people created and therefore we can change them if they're not working for us but also it's not a light switch right like they all do interplay with each other um so to change one impacts many other you know systems i one of the proud moments I had as a mom was when my kid was frustrated with a board game one day and he goes, why would they design it this way? And I was like, great. <laughs> you know, like, you know that someone else has made a decision about how this works. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a really great, especially for today, as so many of the systems in place are, crumbling and are not serving us anymore to be able to get more people aware and learning about these things I think could really benefit all of us I totally agree and also taking the power back to understand that they can be changed Um, right right yeah so there's application there's application in life (laughs) from what you just said which I think is really important so, okay, so you're you're a woman in an industry, um, like so many industries in tech, where there aren't a lot of women. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about being an outsider and what impact did that have on you as a game designer and now as a leader in the industry? Whew. <laughs> it's a lot of, oops. A lot of love and a lot of luggage for a lot of reasons. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there is an element that uh, I feel like my mom raised me with so much self-respect and self-esteem and gave me so much, so much resiliency that it took uh, maybe a decade in the games industry to hit on that. <laughs> That's excellent. Thanks, mom. Yeah, but it did. I mean, I say that because it's also, it's rough. Like, it's real. Um, I've heard some women describe it as, you know, playing on hard mode um, when you go into the industry as uh, as part of any underrepresented group. Um, When I started, I think it was 
four or five percent women um and now it is 24 percent. so to me it feels amazing amazing like <laughs> so different um i do still feel quite disconnected from other women of my age at my seniority which i feel is you know, it's a hard challenge because we do, whenever we do get an opportunity to get together, it's, um, it's amazing. And all the similar experiences and the learnings we get from each other, but we're so isolated, um, because many of that 24% are incoming and at, um, lower entry level and mid-level positions in the industry. So I hope they're benefiting from it. I mean, there is also an element where I appreciate, um, listening to women and underrepresented minorities entering the industry and the things that they're experiencing and seeing because um, it can be a bit of a, you know, frog in the boiling Mm. pot of water and just slowly the temperature gets higher and I do see so many more women. And so it feels so different. When I started there, like I had men straight up, to my face tell me that I was not as smart as them because I was a woman, that I was incapable of making great games because I exhibited feminine qualities. Now, I kind of appreciated that they were upfront about it, where now it feels a little bit more hidden, although it's there. but there's an element where it's like, oh, well, now it's it's better because they're not doing that. But, you know, no, there's still many, many yeah. issues and gaps to to address. So, yeah, it's been quite a challenge. Yeah. So and as is a common experience in other parts of tech and, you know, yeah. the, you know, the overt, um, you know, comes and goes, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, Right. Um, but we know the underlying issue is there. Otherwise, um, women being 54 percent of the workforce would be closer to 50 percent in these tech workforces as well. So, yeah. Um, so from your experience and your perspective, we ask these questions about, you know, what are the biases? What are the other ways that bias impact the, the gaming industry and tech in general? And I ask that always so that so that we know what it is that we need to address. Not just like, oh, let's talk about these these challenges. No, let's talk about these challenges. So, you know, someone with your experience, how would you say to people who might want to come in and and attempt to change the culture? What are the biases and 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 how do they impact the work? Or like, for instance, what games uh, get chosen, get greenlit uh, mm-hmm. to be developed? Yeah. So. The biases can show up in terms of certainly what games get chosen to get made. I think even though we live in an age where now there is so much, potentially so much data available in terms of evaluating, you know, whether your, your game or your prototype is gaining traction or like people enjoy playing it. um, There's certainly still a bias to fund what I know is going to be something that I would play. And there's a reticence to funding projects that appeal to an audience that I'm not a part of. Um, And so that's going to be bias. I mean, again, it's just like entrenching 
you know, those who already have privilege and power in the industry to like continue on, on those lines. I mean, board games and even early days of engineering, as um, you've probably talked about with other folks, was largely women involved. That's right. Um, yeah. That's right. Right. <laughs> and I love this. Let's say it loud. Say it loud. Right. Because that is not the story that gets told. Yeah. Um, Playtesting um, board games was done. They were called parlor games and it was largely women who were the ones working on them and testing them. It, it is something that people, a lot of people don't know about was that board games were largely seen as having this place in, in the household and women design them. I mean, the original designer of Monopoly was a woman. Right. Um, I just found game, that out. Oh yeah. The game <laughs> was actually about uh, how terrible capitalism is. And then right. our brothers took it and flipped it. Um, and yeah. And so they were at this, the, the, the foundation um, of what then became in video games. And then actually, if you also look at uh, old original ad campaigns around D and D, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, the game where you have like the game master with the book and the fantasy, it was marketed towards families. It was a go on an adventure with your family tonight. It was the pictures are all ages, <laughs> genders, <laughs> like um, so. Yeah, we forget that it kind of like the narrative just really got um, co-opted at a certain point. There's the word. Yeah. <laughs> it's exciting to hear this history that no one knew because I think it really sets up for us a different perspective that says, wait, you know, we're not breaking into something. We, we were the something from the beginning. And I love that. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, was it, I don't know if this is come like, was it with programming? There was also this turning point where there was some like research project that then the result of that was that men were better predispositioned yeah. towards programming yeah. than women, but there was just actually so many biases within yeah. that. Oh, that absolutely. Study. It was, it was total hooey, right? They, yeah. they made the decision that, um, if people with a, um, uh, more of a less than social, almost antisocial um, personality were more, more had the bent for computing. That's more men than women. Um, so mm -hmm. all of these things that they were right. saying were like, this makes for the best programmer just happened to be 90% of the things that, you know, sort of nerdy men <laughs> fit. And so they made right. a, they made a job to fit this bias. That's deep, yeah. isn't it? We could really, we could really go somewhere with that one, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think the, the point of conversations like these is to say, that's who we, and that's not, yeah. that's not the way it should be. That's not the way it was. It was an intentional sort of deviation. And um, what I'm hoping from our conversation is that more people in the audience who are going, well, I want to be a gamer or I like gaming and I've got some great ideas, feel empowered to take steps and know that we need those different voices um, in the industry. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, similar with, uh, I remember there was a research project a number of years ago in games um, that that uh, reported that it was a lot of the behaviors associated with girls in gaming um, in terms of their ability to play the games actually was the were the qualities of any new gamer, regardless of gender. It wasn't that it was a female thing it was a if you don't have experience playing video games this is how you're going to react or this is how you you know this is your learning curve so that was huge hugely influential and eye-opening and there's also a real lack of maturity in the games industry overall i think there's very little um time spent on developing talent developing management it's not prioritized at most companies i would say um and so some of the i mean i think one of the greatest ways to um combat unconscious biases and biases and conscious ones is through management training <laughs> and so you have an understand better understanding of what my biases are and how i can make sure i'm showing up in a way that's you know running inclusive meetings how do i create inclusive processes it's it's stuff that like you have to learn at some point you don't very few people just like figure that out <laughs> um something i learned coming from a generation that didn't have access to a lot of programs around learning how to make games how I rose up in the industry was primarily through uh, it's through what's called battlefield promotions, right? Someone has left a job and you, you're left there and your manager looks at you and is like, can you do this? And you're like, sure. And you figure it out. And that is like the least inclusive way <laughs> to like yeah. develop talent. Right. And I saw it because we Honestly, I did, had went through that with a couple of folks and I saw them flame out and I was like, man, that was really messed up. Like, and so that was a really turning point for me and realize in, in acknowledging and realizing like, you no know, part of how to solve this and how to grow talent in the industry and more diverse talent is also through actually being more explicit about how you train and support and develop the talent within your own studio and not just on this pass or fail grade. Right. Right. Um, so true. Which also always has biases against underrepresented groups. The other challenge many times is in the industry is if you're a great individual contributor, they just assume that means you'll be a great manager. And yes. that is so not true. Right. That is and so correct. it really speaks to what you said about the intentionality of training and developing management. Yeah. For someone coming into the industry, I was thinking one thing to um, make sure to actively manage is what is the definition of good at this job? And that is something that is often not, again, in an immature organization, right. is not well-defined, is based on then usually like gut or hidden expectations that are not explicitly said. Um, and so... That's something that I would you know, just arm anyone coming in with, not to say that it has to be a battle, but just to like drive those conversations and make sure that, you know, you are getting the information you need to know how to be successful. When you think about games and, you know, it's, it's a huge industry, you already 
shared that you know there are so many different people that play it but how how do you define what is a good game what makes a game good what should it look like what types of experiences should it bring to the audience yeah i think great games can fall in a couple different categories. I mean, one is around building that experience of empathy or being in a situation that you wouldn't have been in normally. The immersion into a different world and a different perspective um, is just such a cool capacity of games that I would love to continue to see more of and more people engaging with. And then the other is the kind of brain tickling like that thing where you're playing a game and you can almost feel like the the uh neural synapses like firing in different ways um that's a really specific like unique uh offering of games that no other medium has um and so then there's a lot of games today where the industry i mean i feel like this is sort of comparing an arcade maybe to a casino where the casino is really about trying to keep you in the casino as long as possible because eventually you will spend money with them is the hope. And there's a lot of free-to-play games that operate with the same thinking. Their definitions of success for the game are around engagement. How long can they keep you playing and checking in like every day or every week? And they're going to do all sorts of things um, because (laughs) games... Game loops are really good at getting us into states of flow, which is like what we're, we as humans are like always looking for and really love being in. Um, and they're not, they're not doing it with any intention outside of that purpose. There's no intention to like expand your experience, to tell a story, to challenge you, you know, and, and teach you something. Um, it's purely this, its own it, loop. And so that's what, I mean, I have fun with some of those sometimes too. So no shame, but like you want to watch out when like that's all your games that you're playing. Yeah. Yeah. From your experience, I mean, you've had this long career of, of going into different parts of gaming, um, you know, help, help a new person who's thinking about gaming. First of all, I'm excited mm-hmm. that you talked about your MFA. I've got, I've got, I've got uh, a son who just got his, his BFA. Um, and so to think about, you know, the art side of, of it, bringing it into something that's very technical, I love that connection. So, you know, talk to somebody, talk to me about someone who is purely mm-hmm. on the art side mm-hmm. and they're thinking, oh, I want to get into gaming. Mm-hmm. How, you know, well, how is that different from someone who's like got a CS degree thinking, mm-hmm. oh, I want to get into gaming and, you know, what's, what's the difference uh, in, in those career journeys? I mean, probably like most tech industries, a CS degree empowers a lot more flexibility in like the place you work. Cause you may be, you know, at a small shop where you're executing on every, everything or, you know, a larger thing where you're in control of one piece of it. Art is one where it's more, um, slightly more narrow. Um, you're usually looking at larger companies, um, because smaller companies can't afford a lot of art or 
you could be looking at contracting with smaller companies, right? Um, but the best thing is really to, if you can, like think about a game that you love and look at who made it and start looking at the different jobs at that studio. Um, if there's a particular game that you, you know, enjoy the artistic style of, um, look at who the art, art director is. Um, and again, it is something where like, there's a good chance if you reach out them to them directly, they will respond and offer you advice on, on how to get in, how to improve your portfolio. Um, so that's why I was looking. I mean, smaller studios, you're not going to have, for instance, like a concept artist, which is something that larger studios will have. Um, but you will have the smaller, the studio, the more, um, technically proficient it is helpful to be. So you have tech technical artists, which is kind of a cool space where you work with engineers on improving the systems that power the artistic elements and, you know, the visual and graphical elements of the game. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Because one of the things we try to do at anita.b.org is to show people that don't necessarily have a technical background, how to bring their background into tech, because um, there's so much overlap in so many areas. And definitely I can see that overlap here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we like to talk about how people can take their individual power and go in and have an impact um, in, in their workplace, in um, the area that they work in. Um, and so you've obviously had an impact. What kinds of things can you say to potential uh, gamers out there or people who are in the industry? How can they participate in being part of better games being made mm-hmm. or new voices being elevated or new worlds being imagined. Uh, you know, for instance, um, you know, I, I, I love the, um, some of the, the futuristic um, stories that, that came out of uh, the maker of the matrix and that whole different type of mm-hmm. world. But now, you know, I look back at that and I was so normal, but it was like, it was, it was really different at the time. So how do you encourage people to, to use that creative energy that they have to, to make a difference and, and to create new worlds that others can really relate to? Yeah, it's so interesting that you talk about the like imagining new worlds um, because um, Alan Gershenfeld from Eline Media did this talk at Games for Change uh, this summer on... Um, how there's a connection between like the worlds we imagine in science fiction and, and the worlds that we like science fiction, like predicts a lot in terms of basically influencing us to imagine the future in a certain way. And we like build that future and how much of our science fiction today, and especially in video games are dystopic. And so what is the, you know, what's that relationship that's happening and, and so he's looking at how to invest um, and empower more uh, storytellers to yeah, like imagine uh, maybe more optimistic futures that then we could be building towards and influence our own imagination. So it's a really yeah cool relation mm-hmm. there. Um, why do you think and, the, why do you yeah. think the sto- the games are so dystopian? What what is what's the draw there? Why why so much? Why so much? I mean, I think there is an element of extracting from 
our current frustrations and then magnifying them and then giving you the ability to blow it up is like very satisfying maybe (laughs) it's like a play um it's maybe something you know again it's just like the current vibe right now is feeling a bit dystopic um yeah yeah no it's a good question well, you know, at, at anitab.org, we want to make sure that the future is based on solutions that get created for everybody that exists. Mm-hmm. And we think that that is best done by making sure that the type of where tech is created is as as diverse as the world that it's created for. Um, how do we, earlier in the conversation, you said, um, the people have to imagine themselves as gamers, right? Mm-hmm. That, that maybe sometimes the barrier is right here. It's like between mm-hmm. in our heads, like, I can't do that. How do we encourage more people of diverse background, even, you know, age as a, as a diversity? How do we encourage more people um, to participate in games because yeah you know i i'm a little beyond the age group that you named for women but i've got a game on my phone mm-hmm. that i play every single day <clears throat> and there's a couple right and so you know how do we make sure that there are people out there thinking about games that everybody would want to play and encourage them to to enter the industry yeah i mean the biggest thing is just if i can appeal to the similar thing that drew me in which is just there's so much opportunity because so little has been done like to make an innovative game is uh oh man i'm gonna get so much slack for this but i don't think it's that hard (laughs) it's like i mean it's hard in terms of like the funding and that you know that piece of it but to bring a different experience into games i mean it just makes it so easy to stand out um and people are hungry for that um so i think there's an element of like with everything it helps to find your community um whether that's online or in the real world through a local development chapter you know talk about the things that really interest you and the thing about games is you don't need to program in order to prototype a game it's paper prototyping there's a whole thing about it um and start doing that and then have people play the game and see if it works. Um, so that's how I would get that, that sort of flywheel wow. going. It doesn't have to be this full, you know, um, Starfield level of epic, huge game. And in fact, no game starts there. Games, great game designers are not people with a great idea. It's a, someone with a hundred great ideas after they find out their first one was terrible. And that's the process of making a game is that you have an idea, you prototype it as quickly as possible, which at first is usually not on a computer at all. And then you have people play it and then you keep going from there. That's awesome. I hadn't thought of it that way. So I noticed that we're running out of time. Uh, it's been great to get to talk to you. You know, we we are inspired by you. Uh, thank you for sharing um, your career with us and, and what has worked and, and even some of the challenges. What would you leave with us today uh, to think about as we, as, as we move forward throughout our lives in tech? 
I think that relationship between play and culture, um, there was a whole movement in the 70s called the New Games Movement that was started by a group of folks. Um, one in particular had uh, was coming back from Vietnam and saw the relationship between the this competitive sports culture of the United States and a culture of war. And they set out to create new ways of playing. They would have these giant gatherings in parks um, and play games that maybe weren't competitive, that had different kinds of rules and assumptions and expectations. It's these opportunities to see how we are playing and especially our kids are playing and that connection to the things they're learning. I'm a person that play that learns by doing, so I definitely get how those things connect. What I like to see more of is us talking, especially with kids, about video games. Um, talking about some of the things I mentioned in terms of what, you know, what are the design decisions around this game? Getting past, is this fun or not? Like, why is this fun? What is it doing? How is it compelling you to... Why are you interested in spending money in this game? You know, like think through these things and talk about it um, because otherwise it's a lot of kids like teaching each other and they're like growing up learning just from each other. And I see that happening in a lot of spaces um, that could benefit from us engaging more um, to build inclusive, inclusive, inclusivity into play and also the cult, these like communities around play. I like that. I, I like that a lot. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. It's been great to get to know you and to hear from you. And thank you so much for joining us. I know our audience um, has learned a lot today. So thanks again. Hope to talk to you again real soon. My pleasure. Thanks so much. I want to thank Kelly Santiago again for speaking with me on this episode of Be The Way Forward. Now, if you enjoyed our conversation, then please follow Be The Way Forward wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can also watch video episodes of this podcast on the AnitaB.org channel on YouTube. For more on how you can be the way forward, head over to AnitaB.org. Be The Way Forward is produced by Dominique Ferrari and Paige Heimsen. Sound design and editing by Neil Ines and Ryan Hammond. Mixing and mastering by Julian Kwasniewski. Associate producer is Faith Krogalecki. Executive produced by Dominique Ferrari, Stacey Book, and Avi Glajanski for Riveter Studios and Frequency Machine. Executive produced by Arlen Hamilton for Arlen Was Here. Hosted and executive produced by me, Brenda Darden-Wilkerson for AnitaB.org. Podcast marketing from Lauren Fassell and Ariel Nissenblatt with Riveter Studios and Tink Media in partnership with Carolyn Sneller and Coley Boucher at AnitaB.org. For more ways to be the way forward, visit AnitaB.org.